0: TED Audio Collective. This is the TED Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. On today's show, a TED Talk from Heather McGee. Heather's a public policy expert and a New York Times bestselling author. Her talk is about how racism affects all of us, not just in some abstract moral sense, but also in the ways in which it drains economic potential, and so livelihood— from our communities and our neighborhoods. That's something I'll dig more deeply into after the talk with Dr. Aletha Maybank. She's a pediatrician and she's also the chief health equity officer and senior vice president of the American Medical Association. Stick around to hear us talk about the surprising role that neighborhoods play in our health outcomes and why public health has to go further than just making sure everyone has access to a clinic. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on fitness trends. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. It's an easy way to invest in ideas that you believe in. Schwab's research process uncovers emerging trends. Then their technology curates relevant stocks into themes. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy all the stocks in a theme as is, or customize to better fit your investing goals. All in a few clicks. Schwab investing themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Learn more at schwab.com/thematic investing.
1: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast.
2: I investigate data that points to problems in the American economy, problems like rising household debt, declining wages and benefits, shortfalls in public revenue. And I try to pinpoint solutions to make our economy more prosperous for more people. I geek out about tax policy and infrastructure investments, and I get really excited by a gracefully designed regulatory regime these are the kinds of topics that I was talking about on a public television live call-in show in August of 2016. I was about halfway through the program when a man called in, identified as Gary from North Carolina, and he said, I'm a white male and I'm prejudiced. He then went on to detail his prejudice, talking about black men and gangs and drugs and crime. But then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, but I want to change, and I want to know what I can do to become a better American. Now, remember, my career is about economic policy, (laughs) as translated into dollars and cents, not personal thoughts and feelings. But when I opened my mouth to respond to this man on live television, the most surprising words came out. I said, thank you. I thanked him for admitting his prejudice, for wanting to change, and for knowing somehow that that would make him a better American. The exchange between Gary and me went viral. It's been viewed over eight million times and and inspired waves of social media commentary and news coverage. And I think people were surprised that a black woman would show such compassion for a prejudiced white man, and they were surprised that a white man would admit his bias on national television. Not long after Gary and my viral moment, We met in person. He said that he had taken my advice. He said that my words had been like someone wiped the dust from a window and let the light in. Over the years, Gary and I have become friends. And Gary would tell you that I've taught him a lot about systemic racism in America and public policy. But I've learned a lot from Gary, too. And the biggest lesson for me has been that Gary's prejudice has caused him to suffer. Fear, anxiety, isolation. And it's made me rethink many of the economic problems I've been focusing on my entire career. I wondered, is it possible that our society's racism has likewise been backfiring on the very same people set up to benefit from privilege? Driven by this question, I've spent the past few years traveling the country, researching and writing a book. My conclusion? Racism leads to bad policymaking. It's making our economy worse. And not just in ways that disadvantage people of color. It turns out it's not a zero-sum. Racism is bad for white people, too. Take, for example, America's underinvestment in our public goods, the things that we all need that we share in common, our schools and roads and bridges. Our infrastructure gets a D plus from the American Society of Civil Engineers, and we invest less per capita than almost every other advanced nation. But it wasn't always this way. I traveled to Montgomery, Alabama, and there I saw how racism can destroy a public good and the public will to support it. In the 1930s and 40s, the United States went on a nationwide building boom of public amenities funded by tax dollars, which in Montgomery, Alabama, included the Oak Park Pool, which was the grandest one for miles, You know, back then, people didn't have air conditioners, and so they spent their hot summer days in a steady rotation of sunning and splashing and then cooling off under a ring of nearby trees. It was the meeting place for the town. Except the Oak Park pool, though it was funded by all of Montgomery's citizens, was for whites only. When a federal court finally deemed this unconstitutional, the reaction of the town council was swift. Effective January 1st, 1959, they decided they would drain the public pool rather than let black families swim too. This destruction of public goods was replicated across the country in towns, not just in the South. Towns closed their public parks, pools and schools, all in response to desegregation orders all throughout the 1960s. In Montgomery, they shut down the entire Parks Department for a decade. They closed the recreation centers. They even sold off the animals in the zoo. Today, You can walk the grounds of Oak Park, as I did, but very few people do. They never rebuilt the pool. Racism has a cost for everyone. I remember having that same thought on September 15th, 2008, when I learned the breaking news that Lehman Brothers was collapsing. Now, Lehman was like the other financial firms that would go under in the coming days, done in by overexposure to a toxic financial instrument based on something that used to be simple and safe, a 30-year fixed-rate home loan. But the mortgages at the center and the root of the financial crisis had strange new terms. And they were developed and aggressively marketed for years in black and brown, middle-class communities like the one that I visited when I met a homeowner named Glenn. Glenn had owned a home on a leafy street in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood of Cleveland for over a decade. But when I met him, he was near foreclosure. Like nearly all of his neighbors, he'd received a knock on the door from a broker promising to refinance his mortgage. But what the broker didn't tell him was that this was a new kind of mortgage, a mortgage with an inflated interest rate and a balloon payment and a prepayment penalty if he tried to get out of it. Now, the common misperception then and still today is that people like Glenn were buying properties they couldn't afford, that they themselves were risky borrowers. I saw how this stereotype made it harder for policymakers to see the crisis for what it was back when we still had time to stop it. But that's all it was, a stereotype. The majority of subprime mortgages went to people who had good credit, like Glenn. And African-Americans and Latinos were three times as likely, even if they had good credit, than white people to get sold these toxic loans. The problem wasn't the borrower. The problem was the loan. After the crash, most of the nation's big lenders, from Wells Fargo to Countrywide, would go on to be fined for racial discrimination. But that realization came too late. These loans, super profitable for the lenders but designed to fail for the borrowers, spread out past the confines of black and brown neighborhoods like Glen's and into the wider, whiter mortgage market. All of the nation's big Wall Street firms bet on these loans. At its peak, one out of every five mortgages in the country was in this mold. And the crisis, the crisis that my colleagues and I saw coming Would go on to cost us all. 19 trillion in lost wealth, pensions, home equity, savings. Eight million jobs vanished. A home ownership rate that has never recovered. My years of advocating in vain for homeowners like Glenn left me convinced. We would not have had a financial crisis if it weren't for racism. In 2017, I traveled to Mississippi, where a group of auto factory workers was trying to organize into a union. Now, the benefits they were fighting for, higher pay, better health care coverage, a real pension, they would have helped everybody at the plant. But in person after person that I talked to, White, black, for the union, against the union, race kept coming up. A white man named Joey put it this way. He said, white workers think I ain't voting yes if the blacks are voting yes. If the blacks are for it, I'm against it. A white man named Chip told me the idea is that if you uplift black people, you're down in white people. It's like the world's got this crab-in-a-barrel mentality. Now, the union vote failed. Wages at the plant are still lower than their unionized peers, and people there still worry about their health care. You know, it's, it's tempting, perhaps, to focus on the prejudiced attitudes of the men and the workers that I heard in Mississippi But I'm more interested in holding accountable the people who are selling racist ideas for their profit than those who are desperate enough to buy it. My travels also took me to places where I saw, however, that it doesn't have to be this way. I went to Maine, the whitest state in the nation, the oldest, where there are more deaths every year than births, and I went to this dying mill town called Lewiston, that is being revitalized by new people, mostly African, mostly Muslim, immigrants and refugees. There I met a woman named Cecile, whose parents had been part of the last wave of new people to come to Lewiston. These are French-Canadian mill workers at the turn of the century. Cecile was retired, but she had found a new purpose in life by organizing Congolese refugees to join with the white retirees at the Franco Heritage Center. (laughs) These men and women from the Congo were helping these retirees remember the French that they hadn't spoken since their childhoods. And together, these two communities helped each other feel at home. You know, for all the political talk about the newcomers being a drain on the town, a bipartisan think tank found that the local refugee community there created $40 million in tax revenue and $130 million in income. And I talked to the town administrator who was boasting about the fact that Lewiston was building a new school when all the rest of towns like theirs in Maine was closing them. You know, it costs us so much to remain divided, This zero-sum thinking that what's good for one group has to come at the expense of another, it's what's gotten us into this mess. I believe it's time to reject that old paradigm and realize that our fates are linked. An injury to one is an injury to all. You know, we have a choice. Our nation was founded on a belief in a hierarchy of human value. But we are about to be a country with no racial majority. So we can keep pretending like we're not all on the same team. We can keep sabotaging our success and hamstringing our own players. Or we can let the proximity of so much difference reveal our common humanity. And we can finally invest in our greatest asset, our people, all of our
0: people. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Schwab. You're here because you like to keep a pulse on fitness trends. Well, now you can invest in what's trending in active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more with Schwab Investing Themes. Hi, listeners. I'm so excited to be joined today by Dr. Alitha Maybank, Chief Health Equity Officer and Senior Vice President of the American Medical Association. We're picking up where Heather McGee left off in her great TED Talk. Thank you so much for joining us, Alitha. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Alitha. for those who don't know, can you tell us the mission and purpose of the American Medical Association, the AMA? The AMA
1: was founded in 1847. It's a group of physicians organized to advocate for policies and laws to support health overall. Our motto is to be a powerful ally in patient care. We have a management team and membership. And then we also have this larger influence at medicine at large. And the whole mission is about promoting the art and science of medicine and the betterment of public health. And included in that now is the work of equity and justice. The reality is we can't operate as our patient's most powerful ally if we don't understand what is happening with our patients, whether they have the conditions and the opportunities and the power to actually achieve optimal health. So this provides an understanding of what is it that we need to be doing to help support them as physicians, but also help them support their own patients as
0: well. So you're the Senior Vice President of the American Medical Association, but your other title is Chief Health Equity Officer. Can you briefly explain what that role means and why does it exist?
1: One of the opportunities that came around about three or four years ago was a recognition that AMA needed to have a greater footprint in the space of equity for several reasons. One, it's clear what our data has been saying for years as it relates to these inequities. But also AMA has a pretty racist past. They excluded Black physicians from the organization for almost 100 years. Some of the recommendations made by some reports that they put forward that really revolutionized medical education also provided recommendations to shut down five of the seven Black med schools at that time. And so That has had tremendous impact on the physician workforce and the lack of diversity that still exists to this day. And so in 2008, Ron Davis issued an apology to the National Medical Association that was created because they were excluded from the American Medical Association. And AMA started to embark on more intentional and explicit efforts. And 2018, the House came together and said, we need to do something even greater. There needs to be an organizational unit that focuses on equity and a leader that is going to be doing that. So my role is to facilitate a process
0: to embed equity through all of what AMA is. So important what you're doing. We often think that our health is pretty much determined by our genes, our medical care, and to some extent, our behavior. Is the picture more complicated than that? What are the other major factors? I'm a public health
1: person through and through. I'm a pediatrician by training and preventive medicine, and I've spent a lot of time in governmental public health. And what is very clear is that the narrative around what creates health in this country is actually pretty off. Most of it is usually focused on the healthcare system and also insurance, very important. But those are really a very small part of what actually creates and produces health in this country. And we know that there are all these other contexts and conditions that influence the health of all of us, whether we have wealth um, and housing. If we do not improve poverty, we will continue to have differences in health. Transportation. Is it easy? Is it affordable? Food. Are you sure you can have food every single day? Voting is a social determinant of health. I'm a person who doesn't like jargon too much, but the point is, when you say social determinants, is that there are all these other conditions that impact a person's health. The part that gets left out of the conversation now, what creates those opportunities around the social conditions in which people can live? And that all has to do with the structures, laws, and the policies that determine how those social conditions are going to be set up. And that's where we have to focus not only our intention on a patient's social needs of do they have transportation and food, but then as AMA, how do we focus and push and advocate for policies that change some of these structures and conditions is really important. Ultimately, where we're at right now is the lens through which these policies are created, whether it's racism or white supremacy, sexism or classism, all of those impact how structures and policies are set up.
0: So the conditions where we live and work can help us be healthy or sick. How big of an impact does that make? Can we quantify this?
1: Oh, we absolutely can quantify it. That's been the work of public health for a really long time. COVID-19 absolutely exposed the inequities that exist across the country and across populations and identities as it relates to race and ethnicity, gender, where people live. I'm here in New York City. And we know that there are neighborhoods that have differences in life expectancy that are only a few miles apart between Brownsville, New York, and upper Manhattan. So how that happens within a city that's supposed to have the same kind of governance and values is the question that we have to ask ourselves and why. But we're very clear that lack of investment in certain parts of communities across our country have absolutely impacted the life expectancy of people. And where you live determines what kind of education you're going to have, what kind of jobs you're going to have. And often you're in your neighborhoods because of what kind of wealth you have or don't have.
0: And Alitha, this is not exactly a recent problem, right?
1: No, unfortunately, this stems back to really the founding of our country. We know genocide existed and happened in the treatment and their forced displacement of indigenous communities in this country that has had tremendous impact to this day and we know the enslavement of people of african descent for forced labor and free labor has also had tremendous impact dr rupa uh, myra who's at uscf in california she says to understand the root causes of pathologies that we see today that impact Black and brown and poor people, you have to look at the foundations of this country and really the colonization and the extraction of economy from communities and the systems of support that really should be existing. And those are the real conversations that we're really trying to get to as we move forward to do this work in health equity and specifically to
0: really tackle systems and structures that cause harm more so than good. This work sounds like a job for politicians and public health directors, but at the AMA right now, you're arguing that while that's true, this is also partly the job of doctors and hospitals.
1: Why is that? You may have heard this, that we're not supposed to be involved in politics. That's not a political space, and that makes no sense at all. AMA very clearly understands the impact and the importance of politics because They are very engaged. We're talking about health, right? If we are physicians and we're interested in ensuring that all people have opportunities and power and resources to achieve optimal health, then we have to have some level of understanding of those conditions and those structures that create health. Now, the challenge within our system is that we are limited oftentimes as physician in healthcare and how we're able to be responsive to when we see gaps in needs of patients, whether it's transportation or food and all those other things that I mentioned. And then there are larger opportunities around systems themselves that other people are involved in. And so our role as physicians What we're absolutely saying is that people believe us. When we say our data says people are lacking optimal health, when these conditions are not existing, we as physicians need to be the voice to that reality. We are now in a time that is ever more critical for the physician and healthcare system to have voice in health as it relates to politics.
0: Aletha, building on that, should we be doing more to train medical students and trainees in health equity? And what does that look like?
1: we should be doing more to train students and trainees the good thing is that we are starting to see a lot of movement the aamc which is the association of american medical colleges has put forward some standards on diversity equity inclusion and justice there's limited curriculum limited understanding of like what should they be learning so i was part of that committee that helped create these standards so those are now issued and they're out there the other part that needs to be continually filled are the trusted resources and educational tools that really teach people in the way that they need to be taught around justice and equity. And so we at AMA have just launched the Health Equity Education Center on our educational hub. So we have lots of online modules now on LGBTQ health, disability, on the foundations of racism, and just basic health equity 101. The gap we still have is that there still aren't enough faculty-level staff that have an understanding of these issues. So they need their own training in order to teach this to med students. I think there's going to be increasing over the years for sure.
0: Well, I sure hope so. Alita, can you describe what some clinics and hospitals are doing about this? And what should we as consumers of healthcare be expecting our providers to do about this?
1: I just want to first acknowledge all the work by our workers everywhere who have been doing so much during this time of COVID and all the other potential kind of risks and threats that we may be having layered one on top of another. Even this recent Roe v. Wade, that has impacts on how we as physicians can show up. We have to figure out how to negotiate in these times with ourselves and with our teams. And so I think healthcare really clearly recognizes that our work absolutely has to be in partnership with others and collaboration. And so you're seeing less of health systems working by themselves and in isolation and really working with other collaborators collaborators. So one of the opportunities that we have been partnering on is with West Side United in Chicago. It's a community-driven effort. We really have to center the voices and the experiences and the ideas and the expertise of those who have been historically marginalized from our society. They have the solutions. They're right next to the problems. And we need to better value that as large, powerful systems. And so in this context of community building for health, We have about six healthcare institutions that are actually providing financial investments, referred to as becoming an anchor institution. So we're investing our funds into that space to drive the economic development opportunities, the affordable housing opportunities, then the community was able to decide where these financial investments go. And so we're seeing that happen a lot more across the country. I see healthcare systems, their role is beyond their own walls. They have a role to make sure that the communities that they're serving are actually set up to have the conditions to achieve optimal health. And I think that that is absolutely critical. And also we have a peer network that we just launched with eight health systems across the country. Every system has what they call quality and safety to make sure that they're doing those two things. So how do you embed racial justice through those systems? We are working to help support eight hospital systems to do that across the country. In terms of cutting edge and frontline, a lot of this work has to do with the stories that are told, the concepts, and how we understand how these inequities are showing up. And so ourselves with the AAMC actually released a narrative guide to help support the physician community to better understand how different words can actually impact the patients that we're serving. So the more that we are able to provide that education so that people can actually see how their own actions, their own mental models are potentially exacerbating inequities. We as an institution cannot just say that we're going to work with the neighborhood. If your staff and your teams don't even understand what the word equity even means or how it shows up or how their day-to-day mental models don't allow them to really advance equity. And so this is the work that I think is on the cutting edge of doing anti-racism and equity work at the institutional level, challenging ourselves inside institutions in very real and deep ways so that we can do better outside the institution.
0: Dr. Letha Mavink, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for all that you do. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode was produced by Transmitter Media and fact-checked by TED. And special thanks to Anna Phelan, Sammy Case, Grace Rubenstein, Maria Lages, and Colin Helms. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Stay well, and I'll talk to you next week.
3: You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down.
0: Support for this show comes from Brooks. I've really gotten into running this year, so I have to tell you about the Ghost 16 from Brooks, because this shoe is kind of a game changer. I found the cushioning to be next level comfortable. It's incredibly soft, yet surprisingly lightweight. It's literally comfortable every time my foot hits the pavement. The Ghost 16 from Brooks isn't just a shoe for me, It's a daily boost for my runs. Visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.